Beth and I'm a psychological wellbeing practitioner from Newcastle. I just wanted to say the biggest thank you to the contributors of the Clinical Psychologist Collective book. I've enjoyed reading this so much and loved having an insight into the range of backgrounds and experiences people have prior to applying for the doctorate and it's been really interesting seeing the potential barriers to the application as well and how I can try and work around this. I really started to doubt myself and whether I was good enough to apply for the clinical psychology doctorate but this has really given me the confidence boost that I needed to give it a shot so the biggest thank you ever. If you're looking to become a psychologist Then let this be your guide With this podcast at your side You'll be on your way to being qualified It's the Aspiring Psychologist Podcast With Dr. Marianne Trent Hi, welcome along to the Aspiring Psychologist podcast. I am Dr. Marianne Trent and I'm a qualified clinical psychologist. So episode 72, can't quite believe it, um, but thank you so much, um, especially if you followed me right from the beginning. Your enthusiasm and knowing how much you value this is so appreciated and keeps me going. Please do take a moment to rate and review the podcast on Spotify and on Apple. And if you are willing to leave me an audio testimonial or even just a drop into my DMs with a testimonial about why you like the podcast, so much, um, I would be thrilled to receive it. I personally love learning about new ways to conduct therapy and to deliver therapy as well. And today's podcast is um, no exception to that. Um, I'm going to be chatting with Dr. Abby Taron Jones, who is the outdoor psychologist. And we're thinking about practical ways to take what we do in the therapy room outside the traditional four walls of a therapy room. I hope you'll find it so useful, so interesting. Um, Abby was a delight to speak to and, and I will catch up with you on the other side. Welcome along. I just want to welcome my guest for today, Dr. Abby Taron jones Abby is a clinical psychologist and is the outdoor psychologist. Hi, Abby. Hi, Marianne. Thank you so much for coming on. Um, I've been following you on LinkedIn. I often talk about LinkedIn on here and it's how I get my guests. I love LinkedIn and I love when I see people that are doing psychology, but doing it a little bit differently. So that is absolutely how you caught my interest. Yeah, thanks, Marianne. I think um, I haven't always practiced differently. So I am uh, now working in an independent practice um after kind of taking a big leap out of the nhs um in order to kind of proactively innovate the way that i work um so uh, as the title suggests i take therapy into nature and the outdoors um and i'm really excited to talk to you about that today and i know that i'm excited to learn but our audience will be really excited to hear um and think about perhaps how they might be able to to start doing some of this as well. So I know before we went on camera, we were saying that actually not everybody gets it, do they? Not everyone thinks it's like an evidence-based thing or it's something we even should be doing or whether we should be funding it. Is that something you're coming up against quite a lot, Abby? I think that traditionally, um, 
therapy has always been considered that, that it takes place in the four, four walls of a clinic room. Um, and that's kind of how it's been delivered since kind of Freud brought up the idea of um, psychoanalysis. Um, and a lot of the time we um, end up delivering treatments and therapies um, within organizations, within kind of standardized protocols and guidance in order to ensure that um, the, I guess, the treatments that we're delivering are effective and evidence-based and safe, etc. Um, and the majority of the research that's been undertaken into talking therapies uh, has been delivered in this traditional way. So I think what's um, fair to say is is that the evidence base for outdoor talking therapy is developing. Um, uh, Sam Cooley has done a lot of um, research into the outdoor talking therapy and developed um, together with um, Noelle uh, the DPS guidance for taking therapy outdoors, which was published in 2020, pretty much on the back of or as a result of how practice was having to change because of COVID. But suddenly we were thrust into this situation where we couldn't deliver therapy in the typical way. So it was either we go remote, and you know what? What we recognized, I was working at the time in the NHS in an older adult um, setting, and there was many people who didn't have access to the technology, didn't have the skills to access the technology, and we were having to find more innovative ways of uh, providing therapeutic support to our clients. So I think the majority of the world went remote. And what I loved was that Cooley really um, jumped on um, uh, an opportunity to explore the power of outdoor talking therapy um, and to invest some time in metasynthesizing the evidence base for that. Um, so I guess I use a lot of the uh, information that they developed through that guidance to inform my work and make sure that the, the, the therapy that I'm delivering is evidence-based and effective. And I can talk more to the themes of some of that evidence-based throughout our conversation today. Brilliant, thank you. Um, yeah, and I guess the guidance was already perhaps on its way, but then the pandemic came around and it was like more relevant than ever. Yeah, exactly. I think um, like we saw with COVID in many kind of organizational settings um, with unprecedented change came unprecedented opportunity for innovation. Um, and it's wonderful in some ways that some clinicians and therapists um, started to um, kind of adapt the way that they were working. Um, in some ways, what I think could be a, a bit of a shame is that as the restrictions around COVID have been removed, um, there's a sense of, do we go back to working as usual or do we stay online? And I feel like there's a possibility that organisations can really, uh, are really missing the boat here on embracing uh, a truly kind of holistic and creative opportunity to engage with our clients uh, and enable them to, I guess, have a more empowered um, position within their uh, therapeutic and recovery journeys yeah i think there's and there's real power to human connection isn't there 
Um, and of course, the internet is really useful. Um, but I personally haven't been in a therapy room with a client since the beginning of March 2020. So that is over three years now, which is strange, isn't it? Because I obviously learned my craft, as you will have done, in person with people. And it's a very different craft indeed, isn't it? Even with us, you know, navigating connection speeds and things this morning and, you know, yeah. spending the beginning trying to sort out your audio and, you know, it, it's a different beast entirely. I think it is. Um, it, uh, I guess, I, I, it sits uncomfortably with me in some ways. I wouldn't have been able to practice remotely um, in its entirety like you have. I was, uh, I guess, fortunate enough working in older adult settings that, given that people didn't have the technology or the access um, to the internet or in some um, uh, some settings because of the socio-economic um, deprivation in the area, they simply didn't have internet. They didn't have uh, you know, anything that would provide enough um, network speed to support video conversations. Um, so we did uh, a lot of our therapeutic interventions in person in people's homes during COVID, um, which meant we were fully gowned up <coughs> with our uh, <coughs> excuse me with our with our um, masks and our aprons and our gloves and that in itself brings all sorts of um, uh, difficulties to the therapeutic process because there's a physical barrier between you even though you were in a room with somebody they can't see your face. You might be wearing glasses because at that point in COVID, they were worried about transmissions through bodily fluids and your eyes. And so there was no perfect way. Um, but um, I really enjoy working with people face to face. Um, I have an option to deliver therapy in my indoor practice, in my outdoor clinic and online. And I choose to do the majority of my, my work face to face that what you mentioned about having that human-to-human interaction um, is so important. But I guess in, in order to deepen that further and think about why we might bring the outdoors into the therapeutic uh, process is that there's something important about the human-to-other-than-human connection as well. So what it is about being connected with um, nature and things outside of ourselves that enables us to understand ourselves better, have a deeper connection with kind of who we want to be and how we want to live in the world. Um, and so I guess the opportunity to take therapy outdoors adds a whole new uh, angle as well of enabling people to um, not only connect with you as a therapist, but also um, for us to use nature as almost like a co-therapist in the, in, the, in the process. Brilliant. Thank you, Abby. Could you tell us a little bit about, you know, you said the outside therapy space or the outside therapy room. Could you tell us a little bit about how you set that up and what that might look like if someone was being a fly on the wall? Yeah, so, I mean, I chose um, a place called Codbeck Reservoir um, to be my outdoor clinic. Um, this is a beautiful 
little place just on the edge of the North York Moors in the North Yorkshire area. Um, and it's uh, I chose it because, well, some of it was practical. It's not too far from home, so my commute is not too long. Uh, but many of the reasons I chose it was because of the, the different terrain um, and landscapes that that space um, provided. So the reservoir is, as it says, uh, a, a still lake reservoir. There's some lovely little kind of uh, very evenly paved paths around it. So it really supports people to engage if they have more mobility issues or feel that physically they wouldn't be able to do something too strenuous. But on the banks of the reservoir, you go up into the woodland area and you can find some of those paved um, but kind of steeper hills, but also some beautiful little snickets, which means that you're just getting into the trees, which is just wonderful um, for kind of mindfulness exercises and stabilization and grounding because you've got you know, the stimulation of all of the five senses with the bird song, um, all of the sunlight streaming through the trees, the different vegetation. You've got the smells of being in the woodland, you know, that earthy smell or the smell after the rain. Um, and you've got the process of walking or moving, which enables a kind of a deeper kinesthetic experience of touch. So there's um, opportunities to kind of get off the beaten track, get into the woods. And then there's also at the top of the woods, moorland, like kind of beautiful rolling moorland and kind of everlasting views across the Cleveland Hills. So there's um, an opportunity to literally throughout the therapy gain a different landscape or perspective as we move around and you'd be surprised how differently people um, make sense of their experiences depending on whether they're stuck in the middle of the trees in a darkened part of the wood versus at the top of a hill looking over vast expansive land so the very nature of being able to more walk through different terrains and landscapes means that people end up being able to view their experiences from very different perspectives. It sounds absolutely fascinating and yeah um, I do EMDR and lots of work around trauma and it we're often kind of trying to find a safe space but the idea that you can in person in the moment you know create a unique safe space where you've also been with them is potentially really powerful isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we have to remember that when we're taking kind of deeply personal and emotive and sensitive therapeutic conversations into outdoor and potentially public spaces, there is going to be an impact in terms of somebody's psychological safety um, and confidentiality. Okay, so um, what's really, really important in outdoor therapy is that as a part of contracting and assessment and formulation, there's a deep understanding about what those individuals' experiences have been in nature, whether there's been anything that could potentially be triggering or distressing for them, if they might find being emotive, being emotional, and other people potentially passing by 
if that could be a really difficult experience for them. So you've got to think creatively about how you prepare people for these situations. And we'll have very individualized plans for what to do, say, if a member of the public comes past or if they meet somebody that they know, because that's, that's a possibility in these situations um, when taking therapy outdoors. But that's not to say that people can't make a plan that enables them to feel prepared and empowered enough to deal with that situation when it arises. And actually, on the very few uh, situations where somebody has met somebody that they know whilst out in outdoor therapy, um, it can often offer something useful for the therapeutic process in terms of whatever is enacted or triggered by that person coming into that person, that, that client safe space can then be worked through in a way that you just wouldn't get if you're sat in the four walls of a clinic room. Um, so what I think some people might see as red flags, if they're carefully um, and effectively managed within an understandable and individualized contract, can actually end up meaning that there's more opportunities for learning and development um, than perhaps we would, would have by just being in therapy in a therapy room. It just sounds, you know, so rich and powerful um, and so yeah, full of opportunity, really. Um, and what might a typical sort of first session be like for somebody? Well, it depends on the individual, really. And I offer what I often call a hybrid approach, which is where people have the power to choose whether they want the session indoors or outdoors. I'm really fortunate that my indoor setting is a little lodge converted at the bottom of my garden and sits within a woodland canopy. So even my indoor therapy is spent, you know, within within a woodland, hearing the birds song with squirrels scampering over the, the roof and climbing down the drain pipes outside. So there's always some, some sense of connection with nature, whether you're taking therapy indoors or outdoors, when you're working with me, but um, I think it's really important at the outset that people are empowered to, to make choices in therapy. People often come for therapy when they're feeling stuck, when they're feeling disempowered, when they feel silenced or they have no voice. Um, and sometimes just going to sit in someone's clinic space that can sometimes feel quite sterile or formal. Um, ends up being something that can be, um, again, silencing or pressuring or intimidating in a sense. Um, so outdoor therapy or offering a hybrid approach, it gives people an opportunity to make decisions and choices about where therapy takes place, how it looks, whether we take that outdoors, if they just wanna sit by the reservoir, if they wanna take a short walk, or if they wanna get up into the hills. They choose um, whether to take it outdoors or have, bring it indoors. And that seems to serve to settle some people. So I leave that choice to, to them. And some people will choose to have the initial assessment sessions indoors because there's something containing about 
developing a relationship with somebody in the four walls, um, having to process that initial raw emotion in a space that feels a little bit more private um, before then taking the therapy outdoors. Um, so some people choose to do that. Other people, really interesting, they go, I couldn't bear to be in a room with my distress. Or actually, I couldn't bear to look at you in the face. That's really intimidating. Um, I just want to be outdoors. Um, so I give them a choice and they can make those decisions. If it's an outdoor therapy session, um, what's really important is that we build in a sense of therapeutic frame and boundaries so that that also offers some sense of psychological safety to the individual, but also to the practitioner. So I have what I call a therapy threshold, which is a place where we start and end therapy, no matter what, when we're outdoors. It marks in some ways that, that idea of walking through the door of the therapy room. This is when therapy starts and it's when therapy ends. And it's my responsibility to get people back there within the hour, which can be challenging at times. Um, but largely within the therapy, I give them the choice on where they go. So we meet a fork in the, in the path and they're choosing where, where they like the session to go. Um, and this is uh, what Cooley and Noel suggested in the, in the guidance, offers an enhancement and an enrichment to a therapy that they call mutuality. So there's a mutuality that's developed within the therapeutic relationship which means that that power imbalance has been broken down. It's less hierarchical. They're no longer stepping into my space. I'm stepping with them into theirs or into our space. Nature isn't owned necessarily by anybody. Yes, we might have landowners, <clears throat> but it's a space for us all to embrace and we all have our own uh, connection and story with being outdoors. Um, so taking um, therapy outdoors means that <clears throat> it's no longer on my terms. Um, it offers the opportunity for that client to feel comfortable in a space that, you know, is their own. Um, and the idea of kind of walking alongside each other. Um, also, enables people to feel a little bit more, uh, what's the word? Well, it's just calming in some way. You might be able to relate to this, Marianne. Um, you know, often people say, well, you know, if I want to put the world to rights, I'll go and have a walk with my friend and we'll talk about everything. Um, and we can do that because there's no interpersonal pressure. We're not being stared at, we're not being watched. Um, and being in nature, it's distracting in terms of the stimuli that's around us, but it's also calming and restorative. So we can have really deep and personal, intimate conversations um, in a way that uh, feels less intimidating than if we were just in the house or um, trying to have a conversation over dinner. Um, so that mutuality and that sense of freedom that comes with working alongside somebody and kind of entering into their own world um, really frees up 
um, the therapeutic alliance um, and enables people to be much more expressive, probably earlier on in the therapy. Yeah, and I don't know if you're aware of it, but um, the founder of um, EMDR, who has sadly passed away quite recently, she put that together as a model initially because she'd been out for a walk and thinking about something that had been really problematic for her and observed that the very act of walking, you know, and I think she was tapping her legs as she went sort of absentmindedly. She felt a lot better. And so, you know, even talking about things that are challenging as somebody is walking or using both hands, for example, you're getting that bilateral stimulation, which helps everything process yeah. and lay flatter, doesn't it? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, so bilateral stimulation is a core part of what taking therapy outdoors brings to the process because walking, as you say, one foot in front of the other provides that bilateral stimulation of the brain, which we need to, in order to process traumatic experience and memories. Um, so you don't really need to task or do any of that because walking itself will offer the same stimulation that's required. <clears throat> but kind of to deepen that a little bit more, so we can take, um, we can think about the um, Kaplan and Kaplan's theory about attentional restoration. So um, in our in our day-to-day -day lives, um, you know, when we're working, when we're on the computer, when we're studying, you know, um, we're, we're on placements and we're actively trying to um, problem-solve, decision-make, you know, consider rationales for things. Um, we're using a part of the attentional system called focused attention, okay? And when we're using that day in, day out, it's extremely fatiguing. It's resource-heavy. Um, and that's why at the end of the day, when we've kind of, you know, finished a day at work or we've been working on an assignment um, or we've been um, you know spending endless kind of hours looking at the computer doing zoom stuff it's 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 kind of just um, mind-numbing we might end up with a bit of a fog might have a headache we might have reduced attention our concentration that might not be quite as good um, what nature offers us is an opportunity to switch systems. So in nature, we tend to utilize a part of the attentional system which is unfocused or spontaneous because we're constantly just drawn to something visual in our, in our visual field or in our auditory fields or what we're feeling with the wind kind of brushing through our, our, our skin, we'll suddenly turn to that, that, that place or away from it. We'll see something we like or we'll hear something we like. And uh, we're no longer engaging in focused attention. We are using spontaneous attention and we're just drawn to whatever is around us. So that automatically means that our eyes are moving left and right, left and right, left and right. That bilateral stimulation happens no matter what um, and um, Kaplan and Kaplan suggested with attentional restoration theory that moving on to kind of that unfocused attentional system uh, enables um, uh, the kind of the restoration of concentrated or focused attention so it actually ends up being something that's important for our 
um, cognitive restoration and supports kind of the um, uh, us in terms of rest and managing fatigue. Um, so just to kind of take that idea a little bit further, just not just only is it about the walking and the movement of our body left and right, but our eyes are drawn and our senses are drawn in different directions. And that also offers another level of the bilateral stimulation of the brain. So useful, so interesting as well. Thanks for sharing that with us. Um, and I guess I'm thinking about our audience being aspiring psychologists um, and or mental health professionals. Yeah. Um, and I'm imagining you know, in fact, I did suggest going out and walking with clients and it was very firmly said, no, it's too risky. Um, how do you begin to kind of have that conversation with with employing trusts, um, managers, supervisors, teams around risk, Abby? Well, I think it can be a little bit more difficult, but as long as you've got multiple levels of assessment of risk throughout your um, contracting and formulation, and you can make a clear um, articulated argument for why taking therapy might be in this person's best interest, um, then you should have a, like a strong case. You can use the Cooley and Noel guidance to really help you to understand what needs to be um, considered as potential risks within outdoor therapy and what might be required to mitigate against those. So, um, for example, in the assessment process, you would have questions um, about what that person's relationship is with nature, why they're drawn to taking therapy outdoors. Um, some people just have a natural affiliation with being outdoors. That's where they go to heal and to be invigorated. I know that's certainly the case for me. And that's a little bit about my journey into why I chose to um, become a specialist in outdoor therapy. Uh, which I can share in a little, a little while if you're interested. Um, but um, you want to find out what what the relationship that person has with, with the outdoors is, why they might want to deepen it. Um, now, some eco-psychologists suggest that actually, yeah, the research that we're looking at is, is the wrong way around. It's not that there's physical and psychological benefits to being in nature. It's actually the fact that due to industrialization um, and urbanization, humans have been removed from their natural communal settings. And it is that disconnection with nature which is causing us distress. And I think that that's really powerful to the point where some people will suggest that there is a thing called nature deficit disorder that the reason we're hurting as humans is because we're no longer living connected with nature. We forget that as human beings, we are nature. We are an animal and an organism in this greater whole. But unfortunately, I guess the way that humans have developed in modern societies and modern cultures is that we often think ourselves as greater than uh, nature and the things around us and that that has led to some um, difficult situations like the climate crisis that we find ourselves in um, but yeah so there's this uh, sense that if we enable people to connect more with the natural world 
not only will they gain the benefit of, of, of kind of, you know, reduced stress, reduced anxiety, lifted mood, sense of contentment, um, the physical benefits of being in nature are kind of linked to um, the, the kind of the suppressing of the, um, the stress response, um, supporting our immune system, supporting our um, cardiovascular system, those types of things. If we actually enable people to connect more with nature, they're going to reap the benefits of that. Um, and I guess that's what one of the reasons why I was interested in bringing therapy outdoors and making people um, more connected with their, with their natural lands. Yeah, and I think in terms of services, you know, one of the very contentious issues when I was in the NHS was room availability um, in the service I was most recently in. But actually, this is a way potentially, I know you said that you've got an outdoor space and an, in, and an indoor space, potentially this is a way of increasing capacity because we often have the staff, but not the rooms. And so when I was yeah. um, in my most recent job, at one point I had four peripatetic clinics that I'd set up. Um, which isn't very great use of my time, you know, diving all over the city. But I was passionate about, you know, trying to maximise my time efficiently so that I could see, you know, the number of clients that was in my job plan. Um, but not all therapists were doing that because they couldn't get the rooms. And potentially introducing a new therapeutic outdoor space is quite useful in combating that difficulty. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I think... So there's going to be logistical reasons why organisations might benefit from broadening their um, perspective on where therapy can be delivered. But also, I think there's something important about recognising the impact on therapeutic outcomes for clients. Like you, I'm sure Marianne, will have spent many a time, many a session, um, in a room with a client and it's felt really really difficult it's felt like kind of the the phrase that's coming to my mind is like it's like drawing blood from a stone like people in some settings they 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 close up they struggle to feel safe enough um, to express themselves um, particularly those people who have experienced some level of neglect or abuse uh, find it difficult to trust others. For some people, being in a room with somebody is paralyzing, okay? It removes their voice, they feel silenced. For those people, actually, the therapeutic outcomes that we can get from being in a room with someone is limited, okay? So there were some people uh, that I was working with at the time, you know, prior to leaving the NHS, and I put a business case forward for them to take that therapy discussion outside. Um, and thank, thankfully, I had quite a creative um, uh, lead, psycho lead psychologist at the time who, who, who authorised that for me. Um, and it just transforms the work. You put that person in a setting which they feel safe in because it's theirs, they have ownership over it. And you're not staring them in the face. And you're walking alongside them and suddenly they can speak. Uh, and for those individuals, the therapeutic outcome, the benefit um, is going to be significantly better. Um, so organizations are going to benefit from people having access 
to a therapy which is best suited to their individual needs, which means that they're going to be, we're going to be working through those um, wait lists in a way that meets um, everybody's you know, differing needs. Now, not everybody wants to take therapy outdoors and not every practitioner wants to do that either. What's really important is recognizing that there has to be a joint um, uh, interest um, uh, in, in taking that, in that, that work outdoors. Um, because if we end up trying to force some practitioners to do something they're not comfortable with, we're actually going to damage um, the therapeutic process. And if we try and put everybody in outdoor therapy because they don't have rooms, when they don't have a natural affiliation with the outdoors, or maybe something traumatic or triggering happened for them outdoors, we're going to be doing people harm. So it's not just about this is something we should just be offering. It's coming back down to that very bespoke initial assessment and formulation about what is it about nature and being outdoors that's therapeutic or invigorating or restorative for this particular individual? And how does that marry alongside their more generic and traditional therapeutic goals and bringing those things together? Absolutely. So it sounds like it's bespoke for the client, but also for the therapist as well. Um, and yeah, I'm imagining number of clients that I've worked with who've been, you know, salted in woodlands or, or went out running, exactly. you know, that's not, exactly. that would just be flooding, wouldn't it? Do that to them straight off the bat. Exactly. And some people don't realise, so I've had people come exploring and interested in outdoor therapy and they've not made connections with part of their, their experience, which actually could end up being quite triggering or challenging for that person. And that's not to say that we then don't do it. We might do it in a more graded way and we might have very explicit things around particular parts of nature or interactions, which would be more challenging um, and have ways of managing um, or mitigating against you know, those becoming um, uh, potentially triggering situations. So um, it, it's, it's not a blanket rule and it's not one size fits all. It's very individualized and it can change. So I've had people who I've been working with indoors and we felt stuck to a point. You know, we've, we've done some good work, but it's just not moved on. Um, it, a particular client's coming to mind. Um, I was working with him in relation to an abusive relationship that he was stuck in. Um, but he hadn't realized it was abusive to start off with and had some really challenging suicidal ideation and intent around what was what he was struggling with at the time although he didn't realize the reasons why he was feeling that way we did a, you know a good piece of work um uh, using cat to help make sense of the relational dynamics he was he was struggling with um and he knew he had to leave but we kept getting snagged you know make really really clear plans about how he can do that safely and he would get caught and pulled back in again so i offered for that for the therapy to take to, to go outdoors sometimes putting one foot in front of the other literally means moving becoming unstuck um and for him it was the landscapes that really offered something beneficial for, for the therapeutic um uh, intervention so he was drawn to um, going up, you know, onto the onto the hillside, and I asked him what he was feeling as he 
got to the top when he was looking out over the you know expansive kind of um, uh, landscape and he just said free this is freedom this is what I want this is what I need and it was almost it was a very powerful embodied emotional experience of what freedom felt like but he didn't have any grasp of that before then there was this sense of an emotional embodied experience that oh this is what I'm after um, and versus seeing which was you know a space just on the other side of a, a dry stone wall of deforestation um, of kind of like a burial ground for trees um, uh, and we went there and he was like oh god this is where I am uh, this is where I'm stuck now. It's like a graveyard. I'm trapped. Um, and we did some work about what, what he needed to do to be able to either climb over the wall or walk through the gate. And it was really powerful stuff. Um, and the next session, he'd left. And I was like, why did you leave? And he was like, oh, because I knew what that felt like now. I knew that that was worth it. And didn't matter how frightening it was, the potential of leaving. I knew, I knew what hope felt like. I knew what it looked like, and I could climb over the wall. So powerful and such transformative stuff, isn't it? You know, and yeah, it's you never know what's going to be the difference that makes the difference until it's happened, until it's done. It's honestly, we've just got the best job in the world to be part. It's a real privilege, isn't it, to be part of people's stories and part of people's transformation and healing just before we finish i'm conscious of time and i would i could talk to you all day but um this career of ours can be really tricky to get into and especially around this time of year with interviews and you know people having other people's celebrations their own celebrations or their own disappointments and that kind of relentless slog of oh autumn's coming I've got to do it all again and you know I've got to do research I've got to do you know um, clinical work I've got to formulate I've got to reflect there's a lot um have you something I ask lots of my guests have you got like a top tip to try and reduce burnout um in people's lives Abby well I think that something that's really important to kind of share is that where I live now in the North York uh, Moors um, I moved here for clinical training so I didn't live in Teesside or even know where Teesside was um, before I um, uh, kind of applied to the course um, and uh, I'd applied to a variety of different universities and stuck north because I'm a northern girl at heart um, and uh, when I came over here, um, you know, I, I did certain things for my self-care, good friendship groups. I had, I, I did a bit of running um, that I enjoyed. But I was moving away from all my family and friends. Let's face, uh, face it, it was a really difficult time. I'd never lived in Teesside before. I didn't know anyone here. Um, and so that was really challenging. Um, and but that's where my love for nature came in. I was, I was, um, you know, I switched my road shoes for some trail shoes and I found a local running group and I used them uh, to help me to explore the local area. I downloaded OS Maps um, app on my phone and I just immersed myself in nature. 
Um, and I genuinely think that that was something that was hugely important in enabling me to feel uh, a sense of balance when I was undertaking the doctorate program. There is so much pressure, okay? Um, whether you're doing all of the work and all of the voluntary stuff and trying to get everything in your application, or whether you're already on training and trying to figure out how to balance all of the different parts of the job, um, that it's so important to hold on to something restorative for you. Um, rest restoration and working in, in a way that helps me to be um, invigorated and calmed was the reason I took therapy outdoors. That is the benefit that it has for me. So I guess make space for time in nature. It is deeply therapeutic. It doesn't need to be massive. Our connection with the outdoors and getting um, a benefit doesn't need to be, you know, going hiking in the Lake District. It doesn't need to be far away. It can be as, as simple as um, taking an early morning walk in your local park and just connecting with the environment through your five senses. Um, getting up in the morning and getting some daylight as soon as you can to start the day is really, really beneficial to improve our sleep so that we can rest um, appropriately and manage all of the, um, the, the stress and the burnout that we might be experiencing throughout the day. So I guess a couple of things jumped to mind. Um, I really like the idea of the sit spot. So you could take five minutes and go and sit in a natural space, be that a park, a garden, a cemetery, by the beach. Um, it doesn't need to be wondrous and awe-inspiring. And sit down, close your eyes, tune in with your senses, what you can hear, what you can feel, perhaps the wind around you, and slowly open your eyes look around you in your immediate vicinity look at the floor the grass beneath you perhaps even better taking off your shoes and feel the grass underneath your toes and take in all that you can through your five senses and your immediate surroundings and then through that five minutes gently unfold a little bit further and look a little bit further into the distance until suddenly at the end of the exercise you've got your whole uh, kind of experience you can turn around and take in the 360 degrees and just notice what it feels like to be deeply connected through your five senses in a space in the in the natural world in your environment um, and just take a pause for you take a pause in nature and connect um, and another thing that I really find valuable and it kind of links into the case example that I just shared is that we can often find ourselves stuck or perplexed or with a question uh, and we just feel indecisive and we can't find the right answer. Getting a different perspective is really, really valuable. There's times in that scenario where we see, we can't see the wood for the trees. We're just stuck in the problem and we can't see a way out. So take that problem on a walk with you. You know, you might walk, if you can get up high, 
really great because there's a sense of helicoptering up when we get high. We see things from a completely different perspective. We're enabled to think more reflexively about our situations when we have height. Or if we can't find height, just gently allow that question to form as we take a walk through a wood or in nature in general and see what happens, see what answer and what answers the natural environment can provide. Thank you. That's the most wonderful um, answer. And I know that it's one that people will find really useful. And it's not like a massive thing that you need to do. Everyone can find those five minutes. And I've actually got, we've got Easter break coming up as we talk um, today. And I've got some time booked in in a woodland with my children. So that makes me feel even more, you know, like that's the right activity to do. So thank you for um, nourishing me in that way. It's been an absolute joy talking to you today, Abby. If people want to know more about you and your work, where's the best place for them to follow and connect? Yeah, so um, you can follow me on LinkedIn. If you just uh, look for Dr. Abby Taran jones I'm sure that you're going to put everything in the bio, uh, Marianne. But also, if you want to go to my website, um, that's www.theoutdoorpsychologist.co.uk. And then on Instagram, uh, I am the underscore underscore uh, outdoor underscore psychologist. So you can look for me in a variety of different places. Um, and if you're interested to learn more about what I do, reach out, connect. Um, uh, I'd be curious to hear your questions or to um, uh, hear your reflections on what you've heard today. Thank you so much, Abby. I'm sure you'll be, um, yeah, you'll be very popular. Um, people will be tapping up your little inbox. So thank you very much. It's honestly been um, really, really interesting and yeah, really nourishing um, speaking to you. And I'm going to definitely think about how I can enrich my own life with more outdoors um, stuff, but also my children as well, who um, are still quite young as well. So yes, thank you so much. Yeah, you're welcome, Marianne. And thank you for inviting me today. It's been lovely to speak to you. Thank you so much to our guest, um, Dr. Abby Taran jones Hope you found that as interesting as I did. And it certainly made me think about how we use our bodies, how we use our voices, where we deliver therapy and the value of the setting in which we deliver it. Um, let me know any salient learning points for you. Also, let me know what's happened if you've tried to take therapy outside of traditional therapy walls um, in your trust or wherever you work and how you got on. Love to know what you make of all this in the free Facebook group, the Aspiring Psychologist Community, brackets free group with Dr. Marianne Trent. So do come on over there. Please do come and connect with me on my socials as well. I'm Dr. Marianne Trent everywhere. And if you're watching on YouTube, even if you're not watching on YouTube, slip on over, type in Dr. Marianne Trent, click subscribe and like a few things as well. If you're feeling particularly generous, please fling some comments into some of the videos as well. I realised that I've done it again. <laughs> um, I realised that I had it in the diary to do a compassionate Q&A 
on Monday, the 17th of April. Um, but that's also the same time that I have an expert in the membership guiding people through CBT formulation and skills. And it was all about how to, to do that well and how to think about um, planning your intervention and talking about your intervention, which can be really useful for interviews as well. And that was on my mind and in my diary for 7.30, but I'd neglected to see that I was also supposed to be running a free compassionate Q&A. So I'm so sorry. Um, I am likely to schedule it on for a Tuesday because I think I need to keep Mondays free because Mondays are the days where we have Marianne Mondays um, in the membership. And clearly, it's too much for me to hold in mind that I've got two things happening at 7.30 on a Monday. So it is like take place on Tuesday, the 25th of April at 6pm. So I'm going to get that in the diary. And I really hope you can join me. And I'm once again, very sorry for anybody that was hoping to catch up with me last Monday. Um, I totally forgot <laughs> to err is human. And again, I'm sorry. And if you needed that for your interviews, I can only apologise. As you might well know, we have new episodes of the Aspiring Psychologist podcast landing at 6am each Monday morning. And so um, have a lovely week. Be kind to yourself. And I'll look forward to catching up with you for our next episode. Thanks for being part of my world. Take care. If you're looking to become a psychologist, then let this be your guide. With this podcast at your side, you'll be on your way to being qualified. It's the Aspiring Psychologist Podcast with Dr. Marianne Trent. My name is Diakolola Amujo. I am a recent psychology graduate from Ireland. I am also an aspiring clinical psychologist. Dr. Marion's book, The Clinical Psychologist Collective, has been so helpful to me on this journey to becoming a clinical psychologist. As I plan to continue postgraduate studies in the UK, I found it extremely useful that this book provided in-depth information on the UK DeClinSci application process. I enjoyed reading about the experiences of both qualified and trainee clinical psychologists. The various narratives were my favorite part of the book as everyone's story was different and it provided amazing insights into the clinical psychology journey. I would definitely recommend this book to anyone interested in psychology and aspires to become a clinical psychologist.